Thank you, guys. Uh, good morning. Let's see if I can get it together here. Um, it is so good to be with you, whether in the room or online, and I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Philippians chapter 3. <clears throat> we have been studying this incredible letter from the Apostle Paul to what appears to be his most beloved church that he planted, the church in Philippi. He has uh, expressed his love for them in several ways, and he has been seeking to teach them and lead them in their understanding of what it means to live for Christ uh, so that to die is gain, a Christ-centered life, as we have been saying. And so we're going to read this morning from uh, Philippians chapter 3. I'll read verses 1 through 11. So go ahead and turn there if you would. While you are turning there, I'll tell you that um, it's always good to get a good warning when you need one. And uh, for example, we've lived in our current home for about a year and a half. And we had kind of a unique opportunity when we bought this home. We were able to interact quite a bit with the previous owners. Oftentimes, you don't even talk to the previous owners, but we had a lot of interaction with them. And uh, the previous owner met me after we had bought the house, met me at the house, and was showing me some of the things that I would want to know about the house. And so we went out back, and uh, that's where he told me that he said, since you have four little kids, it's good for you to know that uh, from time to time when we lived here, we would see a water moccasin uh, here in the backyard. Okay, water moccasins are very aggressive, venomous snakes uh, that are here in Florida. If you didn't know that, surprise. Um, he said, so we've seen water moccasins back here, and you should know that so you can be on the lookout for them. And he told me where to look and what to look for to see if there was one in the area, and he said that maybe about once every year or so, he would find a water moccasin, and then he would get his shovel, and then there wouldn't be a water moccasin anymore for a while. And so um, I asked him where he kept his shovels and all that. And I appreciated the warning, right? In my mind, I'm like, this may have been important information before I bought your house, but uh, nonetheless. I was appreciative of that warning because when there's a threat to your well-being or your safety or anything, it's nice to know. It's nice to know so that you can be on the lookout. And the Apostle Paul, who loved this congregation that he wrote to in the book of Philippians, and God, who loves us and wants to speak to us through his word this morning, has a warning for us in this passage, a warning that we need so that we can truly know God as he's revealed himself, and we can understand the gospel, the good news, rightly. So we're going to look at this loving warning, and then we'll see also how Paul instructs us to address it and deal with it uh, for God's glory and for our joy. So let's take a look. Philippians chapter 3, I'll, verse, I'll read verses 1 through 11. Hear now God's holy, true, and life-giving word. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those 
who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you have so graciously revealed yourself to us in your word and by your spirit, and most of all, in the person and finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Redeemer. And we pray now as we study this passage, Lord, that you would help us understand this warning and also help us understand more deeply the gospel that we might live according to the gospel, that we might live for Christ and trusting only in Christ for our righteousness in your sight. Would you bless us now and teach us and also use this time, Lord, to equip us to continue our mission to make disciples. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Kids, if you're looking for a word of the day, let's go with righteous or righteousness. Okay, you can track how often I say that word. Righteousness is what we need in order to have a good standing with God. You have to have righteousness in order to be accepted by God. And what Paul's talking about in this passage is how we get that righteousness that we need, that right standing with God. It's a very important thing for us to understand. In fact, um, for all of us to be considering this is, is just huge. I love how Paul says that he's telling them something he's told them before, but it's safe for them to hear it again. Now, we need to constantly return to the truth about how we end up in a right standing with God, how we become, as sinners, uh, acceptable to this holy and righteous God. As one of my seminary professors used to say, he said, guys, you got to tell your congregations that the default position of the human heart is works righteousness. 
In other words, what he's saying is, by nature, what we naturally assume is that if we're going to be in a right standing with God, if we're going to be acceptable to God, it's going to be through things that we do. It's going to be through good works or it's going to be through good behavior. And it's true. We need to be reminded of this all the time, that the default position of our hearts is that we are righteous because of what we do. And so this whole passage is Paul knowing that there's going to be some people that will likely be coming to the Philippians to teach them something wrong, heretical, evil about how we are made righteous in God's sight or how we become acceptable to God. And that's what this warning is about. And the main thing he wants us to see here, the main thing I think God wants us to see is that righteousness, a right standing with God, being fully accepted by God is something that comes through faith in Christ alone. It doesn't come through anything we do. It doesn't come through anything we avoid doing. It only comes through faith in Christ because of what he's done for us in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And therefore, we want to be on the lookout for anybody who teaches anything different than that. And that's what Paul is going to address here. So our main thought is that the righteousness that we need and that our hearts long for only comes through faith in Christ. And we're going to look at this warning, and we're going to see that Paul wants us to watch out for something, and he wants us to reject something, and he wants us to accept something. Okay? So if you're making an outline, it'll be those three things. We're going to watch out for something, we're going to reject something, and then we're going to accept something. So look at verses 1 through 3. Let's watch out. First thing that we see in this passage here is Paul wants the Philippians, God wants you and I to watch out for what we should call legalism. Okay? Paul doesn't use that word here in this passage, but it is what he's describing. He's going to use the phrase putting confidence in the flesh. That's what legalism is. Legalism is when you operate according to the idea or the belief that you actually can do things that make you acceptable to God, that give you righteousness in God's sight. And Paul's going to say, watch out for people who teach that, because it's not true, and people, such people will come. Look at what he says in verse 1. He says, finally, my brothers, and can we just pause there for a second? There's two whole more chapters he says, finally. He's a preacher, okay? That's what, what we do. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write these same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. So he has already taught this to them who knows how many times. He's got to say it again. You and I have heard this who, who knows how many times. We've got to hear it again. What's the warning? Here it is, verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, Paul's using some pretty strong language here. He's calling people dogs. He's calling people evildoers. And the reason for that strong language is because of how dangerous it is for Christians or churches to fall into this trap of what he calls putting confidence in the flesh. Okay, it's where we begin to think that God accepts us, not simply because of what Christ has done for us, but because I do these certain things or I don't do those certain things. 
and what he's dealing with is, you know, Paul, Paul had planted a number of churches, and if you read his other letters, you will see that this comes up in other places, this idea that there are going to be people who come, or maybe even people who are already there, teaching that what Christ has done for people on the cross is not enough. In this particular situation, he knew that there were people who were going to come to the Philippians, and they were going to teach that in order to be saved, in order to be in a right relationship with God, you not only had to trust in Christ, but first you actually had to be circumcised. So if you're familiar with the Old Testament, the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament was circumcision, okay? And that sign then was replaced with baptism. But at the time, Paul is, uh, in the Old Testament, that was the sign of the covenant. And what, what these Judaizers, as they're referred to, were doing is they would go to these different Christian churches and they would say to the Gentiles, remember the Philippian church was primarily made up of Gentiles. They were not Jewish before they became Christians. They were Gentiles. And what these Judaizers, Judaizers would do is they would come and they would say, oh yeah, yeah, you can be a Christian, but first you've got to become a Jew. So first you need to be circumcised. Then you can become a Christian. Then you can be in a right relationship with God. And so Paul knows that's going to happen, and so he, with this very strong language, he issues this warning. Watch out for that. Watch out for the people who come and say that you've got to be circumcised in order to be saved. You've got to do something in order to be saved. And now he's making a sharp distinction between those people, the evildoers who teach that stuff, and himself and the apostles and true Believers, he says, we are the circumcision. Now, the reason he says that is in the Old Testament, sometimes the people of God were referred to as the circumcision. And what he's saying is, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Jesus Christ and don't put confidence in the flesh, we who don't believe you have to do something in order to be made right with God, we are the circumcision, he says. We are the true people of God. So now there's these two paths. They're saying that there's things you must do in order to be acceptable to God, which is heresy. It's wrong. It's antithetical to the gospel. And then there's what Paul is teaching. That we are made right through what Christ has done, and that alone. And that's received through faith, which he'll talk about in a little bit. So legalism is something we want to make sure we are on the lookout for, where we Either people say that you have to do this in order to be saved, or they make you feel like you need to do something in order to be saved. It can happen either way. And we've got to be careful because it's not just you know, somebody who really cares about obeying God's law. We should all care about obeying God's law, just absolutely not because that's how we are made right with him. So we do have to understand it's not like he's saying the law here is bad. Uh, Jerry Bridges says this, legalism does not consist in yielding obedience to the law. Rather, it is to seek justification and good standing with God through the merit of the works done in obedience to the law instead of by faith in Christ. So we don't want to think here that obeying God is somehow wrong or bad. That's not what Paul's saying. But we absolutely do not want to look at the ways we've obeyed God and believe that's what makes us acceptable to him. That would be putting confidence in the flesh. We want to have zero confidence in the flesh. When we ask ourselves, can I, is there anything I can do to make myself right with God? We want to say no. No confidence in the flesh. 
I was thinking about this, and it reminded me of a friend of mine, Lance. When I was in high school, uh, a lot of the kids would gather downtown. I lived in this kind of historic downtown, upstate New York. And uh, one time I heard that Lance is going to jump the alley uh, from the top of the building. And so there was this alley between a couple buildings, and he was going to go up to the top of one building and jump across to the other building, jumping over the alley. And so we all heard about this, so we ran to the alley, and there's a bunch of us down on the ground looking up at this gap that Lance is going to try to jump. And there's two different things being shouted. Some people were saying, do it, Lance. Go for it, man. And others of us were saying, don't do it, Lance. Do not do this, man. You're not going to make it. And uh, fortunately, Lance ended up deciding to do a trial run, and he came down, and he tried to jump the alley, so the same distance as up here, down here. He tried to jump the alley on the ground to see if he could do it. He took a running start, and he leapt, and he landed in the middle of the alley. So he totally would have died. He totally would have died. He tried again, didn't even come close. He tried a third time, didn't even come close. And in that moment, he realized that the people that were telling him, don't do it, do not put confidence in yourself, were his true friends. Oh, by the way, kids, Lance grew up to be a doctor. So um, if you listen to your friends when they tell you not to do something stupid, you can be a doctor someday too, okay? Um, but if, if, if he had listened to the friends saying, go for it, dude, he wouldn't not only be a doctor, he wouldn't be alive. And this is what Paul is doing here. He's saying, don't put confidence in your human ability to make yourself acceptable to God. Don't do it. You can't make that leap. You're going to fall on your face every time. You're going to fail because we can't do it. We are sinners. We cannot make ourselves acceptable to God. That's bad news except for that it leads to the very, very good news, which is what Paul's point is here. We do not want to have confidence in ourselves. Martin Luther's right. He says, It is certain that a man must utterly despair of his own ability before he is prepared to receive the grace of Christ. Despair of your own ability to make yourself right in God's eyes. Then we're able to really receive the grace of Christ. So watch out. Watch out when you're having conversations with other Christians. Watch out within your community groups. If people start talking about, well, you've got to do this if you're going to be a Christian. You've got to do that. Be real careful. You've got to watch for that. So number one, we've got to watch out. Number two, we've got to reject something. Okay? Paul's also teaching us to reject something here. Look at verses 4 through 7. And ultimately, what Paul wants us to reject here is the same thing he's rejecting here. He's rejecting reliance upon his religious resume, if you will, as a way to make him acceptable in God's sight. He gives kind of a list of things that at one time he held very dear, and most of these things aren't bad. There's only like one bad thing on here, persecuting the church. But everything else he says here is good stuff. And what he's getting at is he used to actually think these things are part of what made him acceptable to God. And he has ditched that religious resume, and he wants us to follow suit as well. So look at what he says here. He says, though I myself, verse 4, have confidence 
have reason for confidence in the flesh. He's saying there's a number of things that would make me tempted to think I'm acceptable to God because of these things. And we can actually learn a lot from what Paul's saying here, not only to reject building some religious resume to be acceptable to God, but actually from what he says. Think about it. In verse 5, he says he was circumcised on the eighth day. Again, in the Old Testament, circumcision was a sign of the covenant. Now we should ask ourselves, do we ever think that we're acceptable to God because we've been baptized? If we do, we got to reject that. Being baptized is not what makes us acceptable to God. Uh, number, also, number two, uh, verse five, he says, uh, he's of the people of Israel. Boy, it's so easy for us to maybe think that it's our nationality that makes us acceptable to God. Uh, verse five, he also says he's from the tribe of Benjamin. Boy, how easy would it be for any of us to say, well, I grew up in a good Christian home, so God accepts me because of that. No, he does not. Uh, that's some kind of some ancestry stuff. Then he gets into some of his achievements. Also in verse 5, he says, uh, I'm, the, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. And what he's saying there is that he was very strict about a lot of the traditions of Judaism. And you and I could very easily say, well, God accepts me because I do the traditional Christian things. Uh, he says, verse 5, that he was a Pharisee. The Pharisees was a specific sect of Judaism, very intent on the law. And uh, we could apply that for us, too. Maybe we need to be very careful not to assume that God accepts us because we're in a denomination of Christianity. We're in the PCA. That does not make us acceptable to God. Uh, verse 6, he talks about his zeal. And we want to make sure we don't ever think, well, God accepts me because I'm so sincere. I'm so zealous. Uh, verse 6, he calls him, says, uh, as righteousness under the law, he's blameless. He's not calling himself sinless there. In other books, he recognizes his own sin. Blameless in this case, he's saying that he did all the rituals, the Sabbath days, the festivals, and all the different things that you're supposed to do, and he did all that. So outwardly, he looked like he was doing everything right. And you and I could very easily say, well, yeah, we, we go to church, and we go to Sunday school, we go to our community group, and we read our Bible. So outwardly, we do all the things but those are not the things that make us acceptable to God. So you want to seriously, I mean, take stock of the things that you might be tempted to see as something that makes you acceptable to God and then completely reject it. Paul will call all this stuff rubbish, and he actually doesn't use the word rubbish. We clean it up in the English for the kiddies. Um, Again, he's not saying these things are bad. It's really about the attitude towards these things. Is your attitude towards these things that they are part of what makes you right with God? If so, we've got to reject that. We've got to reject that religious resume. You know what happens? Uh, I mean, look at verse 7. He says, but whatever gain I had. So at one time he thought he gained status with God because of these things. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. When he came to know Christ and understood, and he began to understand how we actually are righteous in God's sight, all this stuff now, he, he didn't want to think about it in terms of what makes him acceptable to God. He only wants to think about Christ. And one of the ways that we can apply this here as a church is to realize that it is, it is terrible to be in a legalistic environment. In fact, after the first service, a guy came up to me and he said, you know, Matt, there is one thing about being in a legalistic church or a legalistic setting for a while. When you get out and you understand the grace of God, there's so much more joy. 
what happens in these situations, when people begin to put confidence in the flesh, when people look at their religious resume and say, this is why I'm accepted by God, even if they don't say it out loud, if they're saying it internally, what happens is nothing's ever enough for them or for you. Did you notice that Paul didn't mention one thing? Just He didn't mention simply one thing that he might have seen as what makes him acceptable to God. He mentioned a whole bunch of them. And that's because when we approach God as if we can make ourselves acceptable to him, we keep adding to the list. We keep, we keep trying to build that spiritual resume and we try to control our lives and others to try to conform it to what we think makes someone acceptable to God. And it makes a church a terrible place to be. Sucks all the freedom out and the joy too. Notice how he started this section by saying rejoice in the Lord. Part of how we keep rejoicing is we fight against building our religious resume and then relying on that to make us acceptable to God. That's not only damaging to our relationship with God, but it totally damages the, the freedom in a church. We don't want to be micromanaging each other. God is at work in us as individuals and as a church. We don't need to be telling everybody exactly how to do this and how to wear that and when to be here and all that stuff. That gets intense. In fact, there was an article uh, in the Wall Street Journal many years ago now about uh, UPS, the people who deliver a lot of your Amazon packages, um, UPS, and it was written by a guy named Robert Frank, and he was writing about the intensity with which UPS micromanages how their delivery drivers do just about everything. They, he said that there are over 3,000 engineers that, uh, through which the company has dictated uh, every task for these UPS drivers. I don't know if it's still this way, but at one time, according to Robert Frank in the journal, he says this, that the drivers were, were told they must step out of the truck and land on their right foot. Uh, they, if there's any money exchanging, they must fold the bills face up. If they carry, when they carry their packages, they must be under their left arm. Um, they were told they need to walk at a specific, seat, specific speed, three feet per second. They were told exactly how many packages they should be delivering in a day, and they were even told how to carry their keys. Teeth up, thumb, third finger. I don't even know how you do that. Uh, Robert Frank, writing about this, said that there was also, for those drivers who were considered slow, and uh, for the drivers that were considered slow, they would be accompanied by supervisors who would cajole them and prod them with stopwatches and clipboards. I really hope UPS is not like that anymore, okay? But that's what a church starts to be like. When people are banking on their own religious resume to be acceptable to God. Whether it's the pastors or leaders in the church or just people in the body, there's such an emphasis on doing this and doing that and doing this exactly this way and exactly that way. And it is just tragic. So we want to reject the idea that we're building some sort of religious resume. And part of how you do that very practically is you just don't talk about it, right? Notice in verse 3, Paul says that we, the true people of God, are the ones who glory in Christ Jesus. That word is literally boast. 
And so what he's saying is we want to boast in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. In other words, we don't want to boast about ourselves. We, want to, we don't want to boast about the things we've accomplished. And, and, and you know, I'm, I, I struggle with this. I want to tell people sometimes that I had a quiet time that morning. I want to tell people that I went on some missions trip. I want to tell people that I've had this many days in a row of praying. Like, there's a desire in me to say that, and it's in you too. It's in all of us. You know why? Because deep down, we feel like if I can say something that will impress someone else, make someone else think I'm, I've got it together, if I can make someone else think I'm acceptable to God, then I will believe that I'm acceptable to God. It's almost like we think if we get their acceptance, then we have his. It's terrible. So don't talk about your religious accomplishments. Boast in Christ. In our community groups, when we're together, let's boast in Christ constantly. That's a big part of the remedy. Christ died to set us free, not to put us in chains. So let's reject our religious resumes. Some of them are pretty impressive, I gotta admit. Rubbish. Okay, well, we gotta watch out, we gotta reject our religious resumes, and third, finally, we gotta accept something. Look at verses 8 through 11. Very simply, Paul is now saying, here's what we want to do. Here's how we have a Christ-centered life. Here's how we are right with God. Here's where it's at. Here's the very heartbeat of the gospel. We want to accept, we want to believe and accept the fact that righteousness, a right legal standing with God, full acceptance by God of us, comes singularly through faith in Christ. Not because of anything we do, not because of anything we don't do, only because of what Christ has done for us. That's how we are acceptable to God. That's how God receives us as righteous. He declares us to be righteous. Everything else, we throw away, at least in terms of understanding how we're made right with God. Look at verse 8. He says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. There's that word. In order that I may gain Christ by not depending on our religious resume and by Trusting only in Christ, we gain Christ. What does that mean? He says, being found in him, okay? And that's his way of saying united to him. When we have faith in Christ, it unites us to him. And everything that's his becomes ours, and everything that was ours becomes his. And in that union, all of our sin becomes his, and he paid for it on the cross. And all of his righteousness becomes ours, and we wear that like a robe. So we want to be found in him. And what does that look like, Paul says? not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Do you see that? Do you realize that all your striving and all your efforts to make yourself acceptable to God or to others, it's over. You don't have to do that. There's no striving. If your faith is in Christ, there's, there's a striving to obey God because we trust him and we want to glorify him and we want others to see what he's like, but it has nothing to do with how we are made right with him. It has nothing to do with how we are made acceptable in his sight. That has everything to do with who Christ is and what he has done on our behalf, living a perfect life of righteousness, which he hands to us for free, dying a sinner's death on a cross, which he has done in our place so that all of our sins are forgiven. And all the righteousness we could ever want is permanently in place. 
We want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of our own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Take a breath. Stop striving. You don't have to earn grace. You can't earn it. It's free. I feel good. I like that. And here's the thing. Paul's not even done there. Even that would be enough. But then he says, here's what happens when we don't rely on our religious resume. We rely on Christ's resume imputed to us for free by grace through faith. He says, here's what happens. Then you really begin to know Christ. Look at what he says in verse uh, 10, that I may know him. And he's not talking about knowing about him. He's talking about having a real relationship with him where he's known by him and he knows him. The way a husband and wife know each other. The way a, a mother and her child know each other. A relationship. If we think we're earning something, we can never really have that relationship. Right? We're working for something. But once we know that righteousness comes for free through faith, then you can have a relationship. You can know him. He talks about knowing the power of his resurrection. When we uh, jump off that cliff of trusting in ourselves into only trusting in Christ, then we can actually experience power in our life because of the very resurrection of Christ. And that power empowers us to suffer. Not for sins, but for the sake of others and the advance of the gospel. So Paul says he wants to share in his sufferings. Not only does it empower us to suffer for the sake of others, but it even makes us willing to die for the truth. So Paul says, becoming like him in his death. And not only that, but it also guarantees us as we know him more, we become profoundly convinced that just as Christ was raised from the dead, in the future, we will experience resurrection as well. Now, if you look, it's kind of confusing. Uh, he says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. We're going to talk about that more in two weeks. Cliffhanger. But I promise you this. He's not talking about attaining something from his own efforts. Okay, we'll see that very clearly. He'll clear it up in verses 21 and 20. Said that backwards, 20 and 21. Okay, so we'll get there. He's absolutely certain that he's going to experience a full resurrection after his death. Because Christ was raised from the dead. He is certain of his being raised from the dead. He gets to know him. To know him. Jesus said this is eternal life. Knowing God and the one whom he sent. That's a big part of how we pull eternity into the now. Knowing him. If we then listen to Paul and watch out for legalism, reject our own religious resumes, and accept that we are righteous in Christ because of what Christ has done, which means that God looks at us, you and me, at all times with a face that says, I love you, you are righteous in my sight, I am committed to you. Thomas Jefferson, uh, when he was president, there was, a, there was a story about how he was traveling across country with a number of men on horseback. And uh, they came to a river that had overflowed its banks because of a tremendous downpour. And it even washed out the bridge, so they didn't know how they were going to get across. 
and they decided that the only way across is for them to ride their horses uh, across this river and have their horses swim against the current and get them safely across. So while they are starting to do this, as these men are plunging into this river and fighting against the current and getting across, after a few of them had made it across, there was a man uh, who was not with Thomas Jefferson's group, but was watching them, watching them, watching them, seeing these men make it safely across on the backs of these big, strong horses. And he ended up saying to then President Thomas Jefferson, he said, will you ferry me across? Can I ride on your horse with you? And Thomas Jefferson said, sure, hop on. And so the man gets up on the back of uh, Thomas Jefferson's horse and they forge into the river and they make it all the way across safely. And after they get out, they're on the other side. And uh, one of Jefferson's men looks at this stranger and he says, um, tell me something. Why did you ask the president to bring you across? I mean, what about any of us? Why did you ask the president? And here's what the man said. He said, uh, here's all I know. I, I actually didn't know that was the president. Here's what I know. He said, as I looked at the faces, your faces, I felt like most or all the faces said no. But when I looked at who I now know as the president, I looked at him, I saw him looking at me, and he had a yes face. I knew he'd say yes. I knew he'd accept me, I knew he'd help me. He had a yes face. Can you realize, do we realize that because of Christ and because of Christ alone, because of what he has done in his life and his death and his burial and his resurrection, do we realize that at all times, no matter what, no matter how big we mess up, no matter how scared we are, no matter what is going on in our lives or in our world, at all times, because of Christ, God is looking at you, God is looking at me, God is looking at all who believe with a beautiful yes face. Right? Yes to all the things. Yes, you are righteous in my sight. Yes, I love you. Yes, I'm committed to you. Yes, I will care for you. Yes, I will protect you. Yes, I will deliver you. Yes, I will get you all the way to the new heavens and the new earth. Yes, I am with you. Yes, I am for you. Yes, I am wild about you. Yes, yes, yes. Not because of anything you've done, but because of what my son has done for you. Yes, 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 yes. How amazing. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Father, we do thank you for the yes face. That looking upon us at all times, whether our religious resume has one bullet point, two bullet points, or 10,000, would you help us, as Paul has asked of us through this passage, would you help us really watch out for legalism? And would you help us address it with love and grace, too? It'd be very easy for us to get angry when we see legalism and then respond in anger. Would you help us give to the legalist what they need, the grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ? Uh, Lord, would you help us reject our religious resumes? I mean, some of us 
some of the people in this church I know have an incredible list of wonderful things you've done in and through them. Would you help all of us not to depend on that stuff at all? Reject it. And would you help every single one of us here accept that righteousness in your sight, legal righteous standing with you, only comes through faith in Christ. And so for those of us who believe, would you help us leave here today absolutely certain of your yes to us? If there are those here who have not yet chosen to fully trust in the one who has secured the yes to us, would you give them grace today? Would you help them to trust today? We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.